Big thanks to our sponsor, Microsoft Azure, for supporting the first season of Function. Startups, governments, and 90% of Fortune 500 companies are already running on Microsoft Cloud. Join them and find new ways to achieve more. Stay productive with familiar tools, develop and deploy where you want with a consistent hybrid environment, and build engaging apps with intelligent features. You can bring your bold ideas to life faster, push them further, and scale them worldwide. Start your free account at azure.com slash trial. That's A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash trial. Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Now, each week here on Function, we talk about the way that tech and the apps around us shape culture. But this time, we are going to another level, which is another important part of the tech story, the power of tech workers themselves. A few weeks ago, Google employees around the world walked out of work. By some counts, it's as many as 20,000 employees that participated in this walkout. The reason behind the walkout was protest against sexual harassment and discrimination at Google, that Google wasn't holding these harassers accountable, and in some cases even paying them out millions or tens of millions of dollars. I've had to hear about and watch so many people leave the company after experiencing mistreatment and harassment, and I've seen women be unable to get promotion until they wither and leave. She seemed eager, trying to jump in to offer her say, but she was invisible. This is a really huge moment. And we should all be proud and excited to be right in the middle of it. But if this is going to matter, this has to be the beginning, not the end. Now, the Google walkout is an important story on its own, especially in a time of Me Too and Time's Up. But it ties to a much larger movement in tech that's been going on for years. You see, all of us, even if we don't work in tech, we use these apps, we use these websites. They shape our access to information, to news. They shape our politics. And so that means the choices that tech workers make shapes our whole lives and our whole culture. And if tech workers say it's time for them to stand up and speak out, that must mean something really remarkable is happening. We're going to hear from people who each in their own way have been part of this story of tech workers organizing over the past years and decades. A little later in the show, we're going to hear from Mark Lucky. He's the former Facebook employee who stepped down a few weeks ago. But before leaving the company, he sent a memo to the entire staff at Facebook calling out what he saw as Facebook's, quote, black people problem. Now, Mark shared that memo in a public post on Facebook that he entitled, Facebook is failing its black employees and its black users. After we hear from Mark, we'll talk to Matt Rivets, who leads the community called Sleeping Giants and the Twitter account of the same name. That's the community that's responsible for getting over 4,000 companies to pull their ads from the Breitbart website. But first, my conversation with Lee Honeywell. Today, she's the founder and CEO of Tall Poppy, where she helps companies protect their employees from online harassment. But she's somebody who's been putting herself out there for years, leading communities in efforts to organize people, sharing stories of people that have been victimized in the tech industry. A lot of people don't know that there is a years-long history to organizing in tech, and Lee is the perfect one to tell that story. Joining us today is Lee Honeywell, who's the CEO and founder of Tall Poppy. Thanks for joining us, Lee. Thanks, Neil. It's great to be here. I'm uh, really happy to have the chance to talk about sort of the, the history of tech worker activism, both uh, before the Google walkout and, and sort of in the, the early days as well. Awesome. And so for some context, you know, on your work, you are somebody who has done security at the highest levels in, in big companies like Microsoft and Slack and Symantec. 
And then these days, you are running a, a company called Tall Poppy that is about trying to keep people safe from the, some of the risks like harassment and abuse that happen online. Yeah, over the course of my career, I've worked um, sort of at the in the, the standard corporate security trenches, um, everything from shipping software to a billion people through Windows security updates uh, to helping protect the infrastructure behind Slack. And um, over the years, I've had sort of twin tracks of the, the standard corporate security work, but also diversity and inclusion and tech activism. Um, I was one of the original authors on the Geek Feminism blog and wiki. Uh, I was a founding advisor of the, the ADA Initiative, which was a nonprofit that worked to support and encourage women in open technology and culture. So I've had these sort of twin tracks throughout my career of, you know, the occasional like activist stunts, but also having a day job that was, you know, very tech heavy, engineering heavy, high impact uh, technical work. On the one hand, you were the person responsible for, my, you know, the Windows alert saying it's time to reboot your machine. I was one of the people in, in like a, a very large machine. <laughs> right. Okay. So all of us are kind of familiar with that. The thing people outside the tech industry might not know, um, one of the resources you mentioned, the Geek Feminism Wiki, um, and, and, you know, wikis are like Wikipedia. So people know this is a site that you, know, you put resources that, that the community can collect and edit together. And geek feminism was both early and really visible uh, in the tech industry years ago as the first place to collect that sense that I think certainly all non-men in the industry had felt around there's something really wrong here. Something's broken in the culture here and, and really was making visible some of that context. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and, and what the resources evolved into? Yeah, I think um, one of the early early blog posts on the, the Geek Feminism blog was a, a post by Mary Gardner that was titled, Why We Document. And it really sort of cut to the core of, we've all had these experiences in tech of being sidelined, of being talked over, of experiencing like pretty overt discrimination at times. And actually writing that down, actually recording whether it was incidents of that are sort of mundane, like speakers having scantily clad women on their slides at a professional conference, which seems like so ludicrous to even talk about in 2018. But in 2009, it was, yeah, this was like, this is over 10 years ago. And um, starting to write that down and sort of make it visible, I think was one of the really revolutionary things about uh, the Geek Feminism blog and wiki. And we've seen sort of the echoes of that through the years. We were talking earlier about Susan Fowler's blog post um, de detailing her experience at Uber in this incredibly sort of dispassionate and factual voice. When I saw that, I was like, ah, this is, this is that documentation. This is that power of just writing down what happened in a factual way. You referenced Susan Fowler and her um, really striking memo about the really egregious problems at Uber when she was working there around, uh, you know, the culture, particularly in how women were treated, but a whole host of cultural issues, you know, at the company that, that we've seen sort of fall out since. And there's some aspect of it, it was meticulous. It was documented. As you said, it's very dispassionate. It's almost a sort of clinical uh, assessment of here are the issues and here is the, here are the receipts, right? Going back for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but some aspect of that is also having to be, for lack of a better phrase, the perfect victim, right? You have to be this sort of very 
unimpeachably dispassionate person, lest, you know, certainly women get characterized as emotional about any time that they are, you know, victimized in these ways or non-binary folks have the same sort of challenges where you have to be in a certain mode or model in order to be seen as valid. Is that something that, you know, you think is resources like the, the, the Geek Feminism Wiki help with? I think they do. I think one of the things that was powerful about the Geek Feminism Wiki was that it was sort of messy and organic and there were varying levels of receipts, you know, some of the some of the incidents that are documented were ranged really broadly from the the extremely like minor and mundane right up to violence and assault and I mean there's a there's a page on Hans Reiser murdering his wife, right? Which was a thing that happened that was perpetrated by a prominent Linux developer. So recognizing that all of these sort of experiences are on a spectrum, are, are connected, even if they're obviously like wildly different degrees, I think that that was a, a sort of nuance that was, that was important in, in how we were documenting to say like, it's okay to write this stuff down, even if it's kind of petty. Like the, the the cumulative effect of all of these paper cuts does add up. Yeah. So there's a sense of evidence to the exhaustive nature of it, right? When all these people have all these stories, you can quibble with any one of them for whatever mm-hmm. reason you have, maybe even legitimately. But when it's this preponderance of evidence, then it's almost undeniable that this problem is bigger than any one person or moment or company. The sort of qualitative documentation that the the Geek Feminism Wiki represents, I think, stands as a as a really helpful sort of mirror to the the kinds of stuff that you see in like the sociological research on women in computing, and you know when you do the sort of longitudinal studies of what what makes women choose to to leave careers in tech, and we know figures like fifty percent of women leave tech careers within 10 years of starting and that the the drop-off rate as women hit their 30s is like pretty tragic honestly as i as i think about the the work that i've done over the course of my career there's always been lots of energy of like let's get little girls coding let's like uh, increase the pipeline get even like university admission focus on these sort of early pipeline efforts but I think the the thing that has often been under under resourced, under focused, because it is more complicated, is what does it mean to actually retain underrepresented people once they are in the field? And that's where stuff like Susan Fowler's post, like the the work that has been doing even beyond tech across sort of as the the Me Too movement has um, ha- has regained force, uh, to say like hey, there are structural forces at play that, that lead to women being forced out of the field. And that's, that's what we actually have to address because otherwise we can, we can send as many like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young girls into the, the pipeline of coding, but if we're just going to kick them out by ha- making them have to deal with this like, bullshit, it's all sort of for naught. Right. It, the pipeline can't lead to a cesspool. Exactly. Yeah. So one, there's this this first order effect, which is documenting the experiences of uh, uh, women in the industry gives a lens, you know, to women themselves, but to those of us that aren't, to be able to see, uh, you know, the patterns that emerge. And he said there's sort of this evidentiary aspect to it. But the other thing I look at at a, a meta level is this also established a pattern for how action can happen. Right, like this is an mm-hmm. issue that that you know primarily impacts women, as is documented in the Geek Feminism Wiki. But 
there are issues that can affect other communities or not just women um, where the same playbook can work, right? And you can, you can sort of extrapolate what are the ways that we can be effective in helping each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the networks and connections that people built through things like uh, the Geek Feminism Wiki, through the Ada Camp conferences that the Ada Initiative used to put on, those were absolutely the the scaffolding that led to us being able to spring into action after the election. Um, and obviously, that was sort of a, a a bunch of different groups. It wasn't just folks that I knew from from those communities. But um, as we as we were figuring out. You know, I say we as as people in in sort of my social circles in sort of tech activist circles were were figuring out what to do in the days after the election. Um, there were there were those relationships, there was that infrastructure, and there was that set of experiences of of how to organize effectively online um, quickly. So that gets us to this milestone moment. Uh, there was a galvanizing moment with the U.S. presidential election in 2016. There is a sense of urgency around issues that affect so many communities, uh, you know, affect immigrants, affect, you know, the Muslim community and other religious communities. And I think every uh, one of the communities affected felt like, what can we do? But in tech in particular, there was a sense of urgency around our potential culpability, people who make software, make technology about enabling, you know, violation of people's civil rights, of their human, human rights, can you talk to me about the context that people were feeling in the beginning of 2017 about what was the potential risk that tech workers had of, of being part of something they didn't believe in? I mean, I think in the in the wake of the election, a lot of tech workers felt sort of blindsided by all of a sudden their, like, you know, Facebook newsfeed algorithm or Twitter's complicated policy decisions around banning or not banning Nazis, except in Germany and France, where they're obligated to, that these technical decisions had sort of world historical impacts in a way that people had people were just shocked by as as people being the ones making those decisions you know and we've had sociologists and theorists like Jonathan Zittrain and Dana Boyd who've been warning us about this stuff for years but the the election was really a wake-up call to people that hadn't been sort of heeding those calls from the sociologists um, to say, oh, yeah, this this work actually has an impact and we need to be maybe responsible for that impact that we're having. So there's the rising movement that's been happening for a couple of years about tech responsibility and about the sort of unintended consequences of a lot of these technologies being created. And then probably a little more historical awareness of, I think of the IBM example that I heard about a lot. Maybe you could explain what people were thinking about, particularly in the, in the sort of early 2017 context of where IBM had found themselves 70 years earlier. Yeah, so the one of the things that we cite in the the Never Again pledge, the the pledge we ended up writing was that you know we we don't want to be building the the machines of deportation and genocide, and citing the example of the uh, the punch card machines that the Nazis used in the Second World War to. Um, to catalog the people that they were killing. As we think about today, what the equivalents are of those, it's Salesforce deploying software that ICE is using in various parts of their organization um, to assist in the, the engine of deportation. There's a direct line from the work that, you know, a random coder in San Francisco is doing to those kids that are in the baby jails that have been reported on over the summer, right? We can't, 
people can't just sort of say, oh, well, software can be used for whatever. It's like, no, you're actually running the infrastructure that this work is being done on. Um, and there's a there's a level of culpability and responsibility that people need to be willing to take there. So there's a lot of context about taking culpability for the technology we create that is already starting to bubble up. And then in December of 2016, after the election, there's this galvanizing moment where a lot of independent workers all across these different companies feel like we don't want to be responsible for creating a Muslim registry. We don't want to be participating in creating this tech. And there is the genesis of the Never Again Tech Pledge. Can you tell us what the pledge was and and how it happened, how it came together? There's all this energy after the election um, among tech workers who were sort of horrified. They maybe hadn't been as involved. They hadn't done the phone calling or door knocking or schlepped over to Nevada that they had intended to. And all of a sudden we were faced with this, you know, incumbent president who did not share the values of the vast majority of people in Silicon Valley. Um, and there's there's often, like, techies go to this sort of temptation of uh, solutionism of, like, well, we should build an app and that will solve things. Tech Solidarity was, like, an impromptu organizing group that Maciej Chaglowski and Heather Gold um, ran in the early days uh, right after the election. Maciej and Heather called on us to, number one, put our money where our values were and donate to these groups that were doing important work with immigrant defense, with defending Muslim Americans, um, with working on solutions around homelessness, all of these different sort of social issues that were about to get just a lot more dire um, with the new administration. And also to engage locally in, in ways that weren't that didn't consist of like offering to build an app for whatever nonprofit. Like that nonprofit doesn't need an app. They need somebody to come in and fix the printer. They need somebody to come in and set up two-factor authentication so they don't get ha- hacked by neo-Nazis, right? The the sort of material support that local community groups needed. So it's almost like civics classes for coders, right? Yes, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, he, you know, you're all fired up, you're all energized about this work. Here's how to like direct that energy in a way that's not going to like get in the way of these very competent folks who are already doing their job and just need more resources to do their job more. But there was also this aspect of like we're seeing this level of racism, Islamophobia, anti-immigrant rhetoric during the campaign that and folks were just like so on edge about what they could expect in the in the coming years. And really, like, with the the Muslim ban landing right after the inauguration, I feel like we were really validated and freaking out a bit. And it, But that sort of freaking out, like, led me to, to think about how can we as techies, the folks making the inner tubes work, making the lights stay on, how can we make it clear that we're not going to be complicit in harming vulnerable people? Well, that's that's where a pledge comes in. The the difference between a pledge and a petition, I think, is a really important one to think about in this case. Uh, a pledge is someone saying, these are my values. I'm going to act in accordance with my values. A petition is saying, dear sir, please do this thing. And we all know that that's not going to work with this current administration. We need to just say, like, this is how I'm going to be the squeaky wheel. This is how I'm going to say this is not going to happen. Uh, I refuse to do this work that I find ethically compromised. I am going to quit. I'm going to agitate as much as I can within the company. And I I think Liz Fong Jones is is a great example of just how much one individual can agitate within a company to to 
to engender change and to hold an, a company accountable to stated values. I'm a trans woman of color. I am working at a large tech company, and I am also the daughter of a immigrant mother, first generation, and a fifth generation Chinese American father. Liz has been a, a an employee organizer at Google for many years. I, I've learned so much from Liz about how to uh, how to get companies to change their policy from within. She's given a she gave a wonderful talk about it um, as like a, a live stream a, a couple of years ago. Ever since the election, but especially right now, I am really terrified. I am terrified for everyone who's Muslim. I am terrified for everyone who is an immigrant of any kind, LGBT plus people. I am terrified for women. I am terrified for people with disabilities. The tech community is at a crossroads. We can choose to do things that are seemingly apolitical, but are choosing to side with people who are who are oppressing others. Or we can take a stand and decide how we want to collectively fight back and make sure that we are on the right side of history. Making change from within versus making change from outside. People like Liz and yourself have been active as individuals and in galvanizing others to act. But with the Never Again Tech Pledge, there's this sort of breakthrough moment where it's a really broad spectrum of people and not just a sort of individual person who's willing to be the squeaky wheel, but I think an unprecedented show of people at, like I said, all levels of organizations um, really speaking up. Can you talk a little bit about who were some of the people that signed this pledge? What were some of the companies or organizations they were with? Gosh, yeah. I mean, it's there were so many. There was about sixty people who signed it out of the straight out of the gate. And one of the things we were worried about is, are we going to get? Are we going to experience harassment? Are we going to have to deal with bullshit um, because of signing on to this pledge? And it, it turned out that sixty people was about like the right level to have that sort of safety in numbers. Um, we had folks from there. You know, there were many, many Googlers, a couple of dozen, I think. Uh, there were folks from from all different parts of the industry. Uh, all of the big companies, and really all levels, engineers, designers, marketing people, all the way up to executives. And there's like varying degrees of impact, right? Like there's there's no chance that like ye small design firm that does websites for co-ops is going to get asked to build a Muslim registry. But I think there was that aspect of solidarity that was that was really powerful in just saying like, we're in this together that sort of idea of like, oh, well, if I don't build it, someone else will. Hey, there's actually like a lot of us who are not going to build it. And that was that was really powerful. So th it feels like something that is akin to what labor movements have had in other mature industries. If you go back, you know, auto workers organizing or you look at the, you know, union busting of the, the you know, air traffic controllers in the 80s, there were these sort of galvanizing moments, you know, whether positive or negative or whether successful or not. Um, in labor movements and other industries, but they were very sort of manufacturing-based. They were classic industries. In many cases, they'd been organized for decades. This was not a unionized effort. This was not the sort of classic labor organizing model as we recognize it. And this was something that people participated in by making a change to a document on, on GitHub, the coding site, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if... If we think about the the classic ways that labor organizing has has been done, of I, I think we have such a great example um, recently with the Marriott strike, where this is a this is a bunch of unionized workers who are demonstrating sol solidarity, who are um, making their presence felt, and 
this is this is like the nerd version of that, which obviously like was physically a lot easier than than sitting out in the rain for many many weeks. But to be able to say like this is this is our picket line, this is our you know bright line in the sand, saying we are we are not going to do this. Uh, getting to know the the organizations in the space that are doing more of that sort of labor flavored organizing like co- coworker.org and the tech workers coalition um, both of which have done really wonderful work um, changing how companies interact with their employees um, using the tools of what's called protected concerted activity which is the idea that it, you can advocate for changes in labor conditions without being part of a union and you're actually protected against retaliation as long as you can convince one other person that this is a thing worth advocating for. So as long as two or more employees at a tech company say, hey, you know, we should like change our benefits or make sure that we have trans-inclusive health care or, you know, whatever the, the working conditions that you want to advocate for, as long as it's two or more people, you actually can't be fired for that. I'm not a labor lawyer. People shouldn't take legal advice from me, but that is that is my understanding of how uh, protected concerted activity works. And Coworker actually has a really good FAQ about it. So this moment happens, and yes, there's decades of history leading up to it and all these other influences that helped shape it, but you did galvanize it, you personally. What was your feeling for you as somebody that's worked in this industry for many years? And, you know, as you said, you've still got your day job. You're still working on, let me make sure that security works on, on these platforms that I'm responsible for. Like, you're still doing that work. But this, this principle, this idea that you're advancing catches fire and has this, this sort of milestone moment happen. How did, how did you feel personally? I mean, personally, I was freaked out. I'm just going to be totally honest. I was on an H-1B. The H-1B is the skilled worker visa that a lot of techies come to the U.S. on. And um, if you have a job on an H-1B and you get fired from that job, you basically like just have to leave the country. There's like a small grace period where you might be able to like find a new job and transfer your visa over, but it's like super, super dicey. Your presence in the com- in the country is contingent on your continued employment. And... Um, there was always this sort of like back of my mind, like, is this, is this the time I've gone too far? Is this the time I've agitated too much? And now I'm going to get sent back to Canada, which in the grand scheme of things, as far as like having the privilege of being an immigrant from Canada, like that's not actually the worst place in the world to be sent back to. But, um, I, I, I definitely, I'm very much the like stay and fight type. And this was, this was my way of of saying like i'm going to i'm going to stand by my like muslim american and other people who i know and care about who are threatened by this new administration um and it it felt very it felt very worth it even if it was like stressful as heck the the thing that really made it feel worth it was at one of the tech solidarity meetings after the pledge went public i introduced myself to one of the um a representative of one of the local Muslim groups. And she just like gave me a big hug. So that's got to be a moment. I mean, you, you sort of, you realize this is having this sort of real world impact on, on people's lives. They're feeling it so viscerally as to want to hug you. But then there are all these other issues, right? As you're we saying earlier, just a couple of months later, Susan Fowler puts out her memo at Uber. And then of course we get to, you know, much more recently, Google reckoning with a lot of different choices they're making internally. Um, you know, most notably 
the galvanizing uh, event behind their recent walkout being uh, the understanding that you know settlements in some cases in the tens of millions of dollars are being paid to abusers and harassers in their company uh, that are helping make this environment you know extremely hostile towards women in many parts of the company and you know there's of course there's pushback on this but in the past when similar stories had bubbled up at Google it was sort of internal grumbling about what on a message board or an email list internally right yeah absolutely Google has has traditionally sort of worked a lot of this stuff stuff out internally and I think the the walkout was symptomatic of of fundamentally like a, a breakdown in in moral and ethical leadership within the organization and I think it's it's important to to sort of connect the dots between um, the the ethics of work like Project Dragonfly, Google's effort to to go back into China, um, or uh, I think it was Jedi was the the military contracts that they decided to not take after much employee organizing, um, and this kind of uh, sexual misconduct and abuse of of underrepresented employees, of women employees. The, these all these are all failures of organizational leadership and there's just been this increase of, of space of sort of willingness to, to, to talk about the the impact uh, that these decisions that, that are fundamentally like you're you're making a decision about your values as an organization when you say I'm going to pay out this abuser versus I'm going to just fire them and actually like, make redress in some way to the the people that they've harmed. We have this this tech worker organizing that comes around this political change of scene. And then we also have the the Me Too movement over the past year that is has really just changed the balance of power, changed how people think about sexual harassment in the workplace. And it's it's wild to me to think that this is, you know, 20 years after Anita Hill, but that it's taken it's taken that long for people to be like, oh yeah, this is a systemic problem. It's not just individual bad actors. It's how do we create these like systems of power and accountability in organizations? Well, Lee Honeywell, uh, you've had a very inspiring influence, I think, on the entire industry. But to talk about both at the large scale of some of the most important political issues going on in the world, um, but at the individual scale of individual people who code, who, who, who create software, who create technology, reflecting, um, I think as I certainly have and many people have, and saying, I could be doing better. I've seen these stories now and now I can no longer pretend to not know or, or try to ignore it. I think you've inspired a lot of people to take some huge steps uh, and really help drive a lot of change uh, in technology. So thank you for joining us on Function today. Thank you very much for, for inviting me to be on. We'll have more with Mark Lucky after the break. On Function, we explore the stories behind the world's most impactful technology. Coming up next, we'll hear an advertiser segment from Microsoft Azure. The building blocks for industry in the 21st century aren't cement blocks and steel beams, but digital tools and platforms. The way we look at a, a new building is that it's a smart building, it's a cognitive building, it's fully connected, it's able to be optimized through digital platforms and digital technology. That's Dale Brett. He's a co-founder and chief product officer at Willow, a technology company that creates a digital map of the physical world in high-res detail. 
It's called a digital twin. With a digital twin, we can see all of the context of that building live in a digital format on our computer online. Willow takes data from all of the systems inside a building, the lights, the heating system, which meeting rooms are in demand, and stores it on the Azure cloud. Then, Willow uses machine learning algorithms to understand this data and make smart decisions about the built environment. It's really about the data analytics, which then allows us to see how's the temperature been going, the air quality, has it been operating at 100% capacity, or are there certain components that show us we can do predictive maintenance. Then, the team can apply these learnings to new projects and easily bring them to scale. All this is why the team at Willow uses Microsoft Azure. Learn more about the tools you can use to build a smarter world and business with Azure. Try a new Azure free account at azure.com slash trial. A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash trial. Thanks, Microsoft Azure, for sponsoring Function. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Now, why are we talking to Mark Lucky? A few weeks ago, Mark stepped down from his position at Facebook as, and listen to this title, Strategic Partner Manager for Global Influencers Focused on Underrepresented Voices for Facebook. Now, that's a long title, but as it indicates, his job was to give voice to underrepresented people at Facebook. And yet, when he left Facebook, he had a memo that was titled, Facebook is Failing Its Black Employees and Its Black Users. In an internal memo that he later made public, Mark discussed what he called Facebook's black people problem. What Mark shows us is that tech activism isn't just giant walkouts with 20,000 people. A lot of times it's individual voices taking a brave stand and telling the truth about their experience. And the thing is, this isn't the first time Mark's spoken up. He had similar criticisms and complaints when he left Twitter a few years earlier. Mark, thanks for joining us at Function. Thanks for having me. So you've been at three of the companies that have some of the largest communities in the world that have probably enormous outsized cultural impact. I mean, between Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, that is shaping certainly for the English-speaking world, but for a lot of the world, uh, what we see in media, what we see in culture. Absolutely, especially when you consider that Facebook also owns Instagram, WhatsApp, and Oculus, which are even bigger than I think people most imagine when they think about Facebook. So this reach is extraordinary, and you've gotten a chance to spend time at each of these places. But then, you know, there are moments when your experience of being on these teams isn't what you expected, perhaps most prominently um, with your departure from Facebook recently. Yes. You know, I come into these companies uh, because they want change. They want to improve their relationships with these uh, users from diverse backgrounds or to think more broadly about how they can connect with media organizations, as was the case with Twitter and Reddit. But what I've found is that they haven't thought through how do you change your existing hierarchies to make room uh, for these kind of changes. And that's ultimately why I have departed the companies, because it becomes clear that uh, that it's going to take a little bit more work in order to be able to execute some of the things that they want to do. And often they are resistant to change because they don't see um, it as a benefit to the company, although there are many, many benefits to uh, thinking this way. So you recently decided to leave Facebook, and then you wrote a memo on the way out, initially internally, but now it's been shared widely publicly. I want to hear how you characterize this memo and what it's about. Yeah, so I first posted the memo internally at Facebook, really calling out some of the things that black employees had been talking about 
privately, um, and were too—I don't want to say scared. They were too reticent to share because they didn't want to harm their uh, their professional relationships. They didn't want to speak up um, because there is fear of retribution. And of course, people have private conversations with their managers, and there were pockets of change, but certainly it wasn't on a wide scale. And so. I knew in exiting and not going directly to another position that I had this point of privilege where I could share uh, what was happening, especially being at the center of a lot of these efforts at the company. I decided to post it more widely because recognizing that a Facebook needs to hold itself accountable and it won't do that often until this discussion becomes public. And then B, that this is bigger than Facebook. That there are companies, tech, even beyond tech, who are going through some of the same things. Uh, Black employees are suffering in silence or they're trying to make inroads in ways that they're being blocked. And so after the post was up, I've gotten messages from people across many, many sectors. um, And it's just been both disheartening and encouraging to know that uh, people are galvanizing and that, you know, they're going through some of these same tough things. So – you know, there's another criticism that'll come up, and not just for you, but I look at other people who have, you know, left some of the major tech companies and written memos. You know, one of the most prominent that comes to mind is I look at somebody like Susan Fowler, who was at Uber. In your case, this isn't your first time you've written, you know, a note like this. It isn't. And I had hoped that previous notes would have been the last. And then, you know, I get into another situation. I'm like, oh, actually, this is worse than the previous memo. But, um, you know, I'd say the memo about Twitter, I can't say it was a sole catalyst for change, but, you know, back channel conversation again is like, no, this was uh, Twitter now holding itself accountable. You know, we're going to explore more about black Twitter and about our users there. We're going to give more resources to the Blackbirds, which is the Black Employee Resource Group. And you've seen a tremendous change. Now, since I've left, I'm like looking back like, dang, y'all couldn't have done this while I was here, you know? And so, you know, I would hope that this would happen at Facebook as well. Uh, Facebook is uh, much more resistant to change. Um, and is very invested in its external reputation. And so to change would be to admit that there is a problem at the company, and it is not in the company's best interest to admit that. So you think these companies have very different cultures. I mean, that's what I hear too, where uh, contrast to something like Google, where there's a lot more internal dissent, Facebook is much more, everybody is sort of facing the same way and and has a, a shared mindset. Yeah, I think that was one of the scary things about working at Facebook is that people thought so similar and there was little room for dissent. I mean, the the patriotism and uh, of the company and the loyalty, the unwavering loyalty to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg uh, is just – I often felt like I was in a propaganda state where I'm like looking around like you guys aren't actually going to question any of this. It's – you know, um, and one of the main examples of that is uh, when Mark was putting together – you know, his circle where it was all these VPs and he was naming them. And, of course, um, there were no people of color, uh, one woman uh, there. And um, people called him out and said, hey, what's up with the diversity? And so at the very end of his post announcing all these changes, it says, you know, we're thinking about diversity. And in the comments, people are like, thank you, Mark. We appreciate you thinking about diversity. And, uh, you know, a lot of us are looking around like, but is he actually going to do anything? Um, but we didn't say anything because that would have been sacrilegious. So it's interesting because I think it it, it 
puts a little bit of a myth to the sort of sense that there's this monoculture, right? It seems like these companies are very different and they all have their challenges, but they're very different kinds of challenges. Most definitely. You know, with Reddit, I found and a lot of people who were over 30 found that the company was geared towards people under 30 because a lot of its staff was in technical roles. And so there was a lot of boisterous boys club kind of behavior going on. And at Twitter, uh, certainly you see a different age bracket, but like many tech companies, mostly white and Asian. So uh, for people who come from minority communities, it's all about finding your tribe. So you can exist within these spaces. And certainly within Facebook, that was the case. Um, Facebook's employee resource group for uh, for its black employees is called Black At, at with the at symbol. And it was vibrant community, people who are uh, building partnerships with external communities, people who are, you know, building programs internally, like really, really great things. But it was within this bubble. It was the black community building things for the black community uh, with, you know, some allies contributing. So in the specific case of a Facebook where they own, obviously, their Facebook, but they're also Instagram, they're also WhatsApp, and you talk about you know, from the perspective of a black user, what are the ways that Facebook could have their back more where you see there's a gap in what the products themselves do? There's two big gaps in terms of what Facebook and Instagram are providing for black users. One is having their content taken down uh, because they are creating safe spaces. They are talking amongst themselves and saying, hey, this is just for black people only. Um, and then that gets reported as racist content. It gets taken down without any notification, often no uh, ability to say, no, what you're doing is wrong because there is a lack of cultural competency inside of Facebook that Facebook recognizes, um, but they sort of brush it off and say, okay, we know that's a problem, but, you know, we're we're relying on AI, we're relying on algorithms. So, uh, you know, we're, that's not something that we can handle right now. Uh, the other part of that is when you see, I think the biz- biggest example for me is the Instagram Explore page, which if you go there and, and, you know, what pops up on my tab is the art page, the art Explore page, the health and beauty page. I follow a lot of black artists. I follow a lot of health influencers who are mostly black. Um, and according to Facebook, what appears in that Explore page is based on the people you follow. But none of the people the people that I see on that page are not reflective of the people that I follow. And so it becomes, is it reflective of the people you follow and you think it's okay? Um, Or is there a a deeper problem here? And, you know, in my role in particular, what I found is that the black influencers, the people of color from underrepresented backgrounds wanted to engage with Facebook. They wanted to launch these products and to be on new platforms like IGTV or Watch, but they found themselves being excluded from this just because of a lack of recognition. Some really big names that I could say who are just getting the short shrift because people don't know who they are. If you said to a black person, a Latino person, they would know exactly who you're talking about, uh, but not from Facebook's mostly white nation staff. Mm-hmm. What do you think the range of response is within like the black at Facebook community? to something like your memo. like uh, I'm sure there's a wide range of, of feelings and responses. Like oh, that. sure. What do you think it is? So when I posted the memo, before I posted the memo, I was, I was thinking to myself, I'm just going to be out here by myself. You know, I'm going to be out here on a limb. I know that I'm saying something that is incredibly controversial, um, and I don't expect to be backed up on this. 
Uh, the opposite was true is that, you know, when I posted this internally, lots of black employees sharing their stories saying, yes, you know, this is happening to me. This is happening on my team. I've experienced this uh, kind of encounter. And so it is – that was incredibly encouraging. Now when the post goes public, now it becomes a different thing, you know. Um, and so you're more likely to stick to your internal tribe or you're going to be more protective of your role. And so that same sort of fervor is not there. And I certainly don't blame them if I, you know, I saw someone writing a post and I'd be like kind of mum on what, you know, I'd say uh, amongst you know, my, my colleagues for sure. Um, but it does open up this greater conversation where it becomes now it's not just Facebook employees who are speaking up. It's employees across multiple sectors, and you'll see that in the conversation that's happening um, on Twitter, on the media, on uh, Facebook, of people saying, yes, it, it sort of mirrors the hashtag MeToo mo- movement where people are speaking up because now they have a catalyst to do so. What what do you think is the, is the wish list? What do you think are the list of demands? Like if you had to point out for yourself or you look at the broader context of so many tech companies are having these kinds of moments right now, what do you think should be prioritized as the changes that need to be made? There are people at tech companies who aren't white, Asian, and male, and the perspective is different. So you can't say that discrimination doesn't exist at the company if you've never been discriminated against. That's a great part of allies who say, you know, this may not be something that I'm encountering personally, but it is actually happening. And then all the things that come off of that, sexual harassment, uh, lack of diversity, uh, problems in hiring, all these things spawn because there is a homogenous aspect to the tech companies. And so if you think everything's great, then you're not likely to change. And so it takes people stepping up and saying, hey, wake up. You know, this is happening around us. And, you know, this isn't a figment of our imagination that this is causing real world problems. You're affecting employee morale. You're affecting our user growth. You're affecting our public perception because you don't look outside of yourself or outside of your group to see that there are possible changes that could be made. Does it affect the products themselves? Oh, it absolutely does. One of the things that I describe in my post is that black users are the most engaged by far across multiple metrics, but they are they feel that Facebook doesn't have their back or in many cases is you know, stifling their ability to, for conversation. And so if your most engaged user group is having issues on the platform, that can only lead to decline and lower morale and less engagement with the platform. When you have less engagement with the platform, that means lower advertising dollars. That means that you are ultimately hurting your business. But it, it just isn't seen as a problem. Um, and I, I used to joke, I said, nobody says, you know, I don't want to make more money. Like, if you're a business, you know, you want to have as much revenue coming in as possible. And it's really smart to sort of think of, okay, this is our most engaged user base. What are we doing here? You know, if uh, women aren't feeling comfortable in the Uber culture, then they're not feeling comfortable in the actual Ubers, you know? So it's like, think about think about how this is hurting your business and not just we're cool, we're good, everything's going all right. It could be better. And maybe you get a better paycheck out of it. I don't know. Well, it's a really unique perspective. It's one that I appreciate hearing from. I think it's thoughtful and and provocative for all of us to sort of think about what our role is in speaking up and also 
how we go from one person, one voice to galvanizing action either by saying the things that others don't say or by looking for others to organize and collaborate with. Uh, Mark Lucky, thank you for joining us on Function and telling your story. Thank you for having me. Now let's turn to Matt Rivets. Matt caught my eye a couple years ago with Sleeping Giants. It's a community that he spearheaded with some help from collaborators and a rapidly growing community of people who believed in what he's doing. And basically, they were taking direct action, calling to advertisers, saying you shouldn't support the kind of hateful messages that we feel we see on Breitbart. Breitbart is a notorious media site that Steve Bannon once said was the home of the alt-right. And as you might expect with a site like that, a lot of people object to some of the messages they published. But what's unique is Sleeping Giants decided that targeting the advertisers on the site would be an effective way to protest the messages being shared. And this is different. We talked, you know, before to activists within companies organizing within the giant tech firms. But this is happening from consumers. This is people saying we need to hold media companies and tech companies accountable. And maybe we can organize on the outside in order to have that kind of impact. Matt was able to use the Sleeping Giants community to galvanize over 4,000 advertisers to drop their advertising and sponsorship of the Breitbart website. Matt and I talked about Sleeping Giants' work, both in encouraging advertisers to drop their sponsorships of Breitbart, but also in pushing for accountability for some of the hate speech and other activity on social networks like Twitter and Facebook. Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me, man. So Sleeping Giants has hundreds of thousands of followers across all the different social platforms that it's on. And a lot of times what you're asking those folks to do is take some small action each day. What are the things and the messages that you send them? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the day. Uh, You know, it started with a very simple set of instructions to ask people to go to Breitbart News, take a screenshot of an ad next to to a, a particularly offensive article. There are lots of them, so that wasn't a problem. And then tweet it to... Uh, the company at their corporate handle on Twitter. And again, a very simple set of instructions on our pinned tweet at the top of our page. And that has been ongoing. That's been a two-year process now, and it's been uh, immensely successful. Breitbart is obviously still going, and they have every right to do that. But what was happening was advertisers really had no idea that they were ending up on Breitbart. And so just by letting them know, um, we were able to... uh, you know, show them where they were showing up and vast majority of them have decided not to continue to advertise on there. So that's how it started. Um, but any day there will be something that shows up because of uh, lack of enforcement in terms of service on a social platform or uh, someone will do something horrendously wrong, um, you know, repeatedly. And we ask advertisers to consider how they're spending their money. And Again, it's a compounding effect because we have a lot of people. The more people we get, the bigger voice we have. And, um, and we're able to, to let them know. I don't think that a lot of us, uh, me included, I don't think that any of us would have uh, a voice loud enough for a lot of these companies in tech or companies in general to, uh, to consider what we're saying. But if we have uh, hundreds of thousands of people, they definitely take it, uh, take it under consideration Uh, a lot faster than they would if it were just a single person. So this has been very effective, right? Thousands of advertisers have responded saying, okay, we don't want to have our ads appearing next to content like this. Uh, Officially, we've gotten 
4,000, over 4,060 advertisers, I think at this point is the number to remove themselves, but the number is uh, much greater than that. We know of a lot of uh, large companies that didn't make a public pronouncement about it, and they just decided to no longer advertise there. But we know about them, but they've asked us not to uh, not to announce it publicly. Is that what you expected? Do you think that was how it was going to play out two years ago when you started working? I did not know what to expect. I had no idea what, what I was getting into, and I'm not I'm not 100% sure that I would have done it had, had I known um, because it's like completely, uh, you know, completely changed my life in a lot of ways for better and worse. Uh, I'm on Twitter a lot and I really wish that I didn't have to be on Twitter as much as I am because it's a, it's a hellhole of a platform. And unfortunately, it's the most effective way to do what what we're doing but yeah i had no idea and and it is gratifying to see um in a number of ways that a lot of companies are making a smart decision in my mind um and that they're that they're making a a moral decision i mean they're they're faced again i think when this started um companies really did not get involved with any of this stuff and they didn't their their mo was always to uh, just stay as far away from anything political as possible. And I totally understand it. I'm in advertising. So, you know, you, you're, the goal is never to offend anyone. But right now, um, through because of a number of reasons, they're uh, in the middle of things. And, you know, we don't, we don't bother them every day, but we ask them to make a choice not to, um, not to support uh, things that are bigoted or sexist or xenophobic. And, um, the tide has turned a bit, and that is incredibly gratifying to know that they're making those choices. So was it your background in advertising that led you to build this campaign around targeting advertisers as, as the, the sort of leverage? I mean, I think I knew just enough. You know, I, don't, <laughs> I, I, don't, I didn't know what programmatic advertising was, which is a system of internet advertising that ends up placing advertisers on these sites without them knowing it. I didn't know anything about that. I am from a storytelling background. I, I write TV commercials and I always have. And um, that's kind of where I started. But I knew just enough that, you know, that the news sites, other, any site is supported by advertising. And so it felt really fishy to me that the first advertiser that I saw when I went to Breitbart, because I didn't know about it pre-election. I mean, I, I was just starting to hear about it. I had no idea what a massive, you know, what a juggernaut they were. Um, but I, I was pretty curious as to who they were, what they were printing. And, and I, and I happened to go on the site and the first ad I saw was for a sort of a progressive loan company from San Francisco. And just knowing that, you know, when I was coming up, you would buy an ad, you know, you would know exactly where it was going to run, what show it was going to run on at what time. You know, when I when I saw that ad on Breitbart, I, I just felt like there's no possible way they could know they were next to an article that said that says there's no hiring bias against women in tech. They just suck in interviews that that seemed really, really off base. And so I, that's just what got me going and what what got me curious about how they ended up there and why they were advertising on there. And so I think I in the beginning, I thought maybe I'd contact um, you know, for advertisers and they would say, oh yeah, we, we don't su- support that. And they would go away and that would be the end of that. But I had no idea that there could be 
thousands of advertisers that show up there that that is um and it's still happening so it's it's pretty wild and and it's pretty irresponsible you know i think we're just calling it out do you find common cause between what you're doing and the the work you're trying to do and speaking up and those who are organizing within tech companies like google or across the industry around things like the muslim registry you know trying to fight creating that do you think those are people who share a common set of values or goals with you? Absolutely. I mean, I think anyone that wants to make some kind of difference and, and they're, uh, they're in a unique position to do it, but they're also in a much riskier position to do it. I'm a freelancer. This stuff hasn't really affected my work. I continue to get work and it's all good. They're risking their jobs to do this and it's incredibly valuable. I think if anyone sees something that they feel like is wrong within a company or if they're coming in as a consumer or as someone that uses a platform, I think it's their responsibility to speak up. I don't think that it's easy to do and I think that, and and like hats off to anyone that does it, but it's necessary right now. Um, these companies control a large part of our life and how we buy things and how we communicate and how we uh how we share information and they they own all of that now and that's dangerous and i think um they have a lot of power and and um you see with facebook they have not been super responsible with how they've used all of our information and people are starting to fight back and uh it doesn't feel fair and and so i think Yes, the fact that they there's a Google walkout, I think that they're speaking their mind and they feel like they're not being heard and listened to. And these companies are really big, but ultimately they're built of people and the people need to, you know, make themselves heard. So any of these big platforms, whether we're talking about Facebook, Twitter, all YouTube, any of these sites, they they have a terms of service that says this is what's acceptable, this is what's not. It's sort of the the you know, the constitution of what's allowed there. And yet it seems to me like that's one of your biggest areas of focus with Sleeping Giants is that maybe those terms of service either aren't properly enforced or aren't up to date covering the kinds of threats or misbehavior that they should be. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's changed a lot in the last two years. When I started this, uh, there were still, you know, Nazis all over Twitter denigrating people left and right. And there was harassment and there was doxing. Um, and they, and there ha- it has gotten better. But ultimately, the terms of service, they're supposed to mean something. And um, all the arguments that are being had right now about people feeling silenced or people you know, feel like the algorithm is changing to silence them, um, I think it would all get taken care of if these companies would evenly enforce their terms of service. And that goes for, you know, right, right now, Breitbart's, uh, if you look at the terms of service for Google and Facebook that are serving ads to Breitbart, some of that content explicitly um, violates their terms of service, but yet they've done nothing to uh, to enforce it at all on on this website, and and so just some simple enforcement of you know clear policies regarding uh, enforcement and what happens and how many strikes we all get. I think that's really important moving forward, and I think it would take a lot of the guesswork out of all this, and it also. There, the, all the trust issues that, that all these platforms are having, it would if they just simply enforce their ser- their terms of service, that wouldn't be there. They could tell everyone exactly what they did wrong. They could tell everyone why, and they could tell everyone how many strikes they had, and if they had three strikes or ten strikes, whatever they get, then then they would be able to, you know, then they would get banned from a platform, and they would know exactly why. Right now, it's a little willy nilly, and so you know, we have us saying. 
You've got to enforce it. There are clear rules right here. They say it. It's in, it's in print on your website, uh, and you're not doing it. And then you have other people saying, wait, how come, uh, how come I got uh, chucked from this platform because I, you know, I, I don't know what I did wrong? And so uh, I think that moving forward, we need a, a more clear, again, constitution, something that we can all be held to and something we all understand when we sign up. Right now, they have not been enforcing anything for years, and so everyone is sort of wondering where they stand. And so that's that's hopefully where this is all going. Well, Matt, the work you've been doing that Sleeping Giants as a community has been doing has undoubtedly had extraordinary impact over the last two years. Thank you for joining us here on Function. Really good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, of course, something as momentous as the Google walkout is going to get a press attention around the world. 20,000 employees walking out of one of the most well-respected employers in the world is dramatic. And a lot of people might say, well, don't tech employees have it pretty good? I mean, I know I do. I work at a tech company and we get free snacks and free drinks and stuff. But all the free snacks in the world won't cover up for if your working conditions are terrible. If you are being harassed or mistreated at your workplace because of your race or your gender or any other part of your identity. And they especially won't cover up for if you feel like the product you're putting out in the world is having a negative impact. It's making the world worse. So what we see is that this Google walkout is not a moment, but part of a larger movement. It's an effort that's been going on for years, maybe decades. Little things that start small, like what Lee Honeywell was doing with her collaborators on the Geek Feminism Wiki 10 years ago. Individuals speaking up, as Mark Lucky did, not just at Facebook recently, but at Twitter before that. Or even users who band together as Sleeping Giants has brought a community together with Matt Rivets leading to have people say, we want to hold these platforms accountable for the impact that they have on the world. All these things are tied together, and what they seem to represent is tech growing up. We realize that the apps we use and the websites we visit have a real impact on people's actual lives. That's it for this episode of Function. Next week, we are talking about one of the most important technologies in democracy, voting machines. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. And big thanks to the team at Glitch. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Anil Dash, and you can find the show and all the show notes at glitch.com slash function. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen, and we'll be back next week with a new episode of Function. Keeping up with your competition is important. Taking the lead with unmatched innovation, that is impressive. And that's what's possible when you build your next generation of smart apps on Microsoft Azure. Clear the way for unparalleled productivity with end-to-end development and management tools. Integrate cloud capabilities across your environment with the only consistent hybrid cloud. Discover transformative insights through artificial intelligence and real-time data, and scale across more global regions than you'll get from any other cloud provider. Because every business and every organization, whether small or large, old or new, 
has something to gain by reaching beyond the limits of an on-premise data center. What will you achieve when you come to the cloud? Get started with a free account and 12 months of popular services at azure.com slash trial. A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash trial.